Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life a unique podcast from Society of Thoracic Surgeons from the Workforce in Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Today, we have Dr. Hassan Tete. He is a U.S. Navy captain and associate professor of surgery at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences and adjunct faculty at Howard University College of Medicine. Currently, Dr. Tete serves as an artificial intelligence strategist in the Department of Defense. He's also a thoracic surgeon for MedStar Health and Walter Reed National Medi- Military Medical Center. He leads a specialized thoracic adaptive recovery STAR team in Washington, D.C., and his research in thoracic transplantation aims to expand heart and lung recovery and save lives. Dr. Tete is a, also on the board of directors of the Association of Black Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgeons. Not only is Dr. Tete as a, a skilled surgeon and leader, but he's also in incredible shape as he has run over 20 marathons. Hassan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Cook, for that kind introduction. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm really excited for our conversation today because I've uh, really looked at your career and and admired your career from a distance. And I really wanted to get to know you and understand your background and, and what has led you to do all the amazing things that you're doing in your career. How did your path lead you to the military? And how was cardiothoracic surgery influential in all of this? Wow, I think uh, that's a great question, uh, Dr. Cook. I think the the answer is in your question. It's the both of those, you know, both the military and cardiothoracic surgery as, as a discipline, as sort of my career path and sort of my journey have been intertwined from the very beginning. And I think it's... Um, been the amalgamation of both of those careers, basically, and running in parallel throughout my entire life that, that have led me to, you know, certainly the accomplishments that you outlined, which I'm very proud of, but more importantly, the experiences that I've had that have really shaped uh, my career, my life, 
and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, my my destiny moving forward. Uh, so to start, uh, it, it all started in a small little town, small village town in New York called Brooklyn, uh, which is where it all started. And, and uh, growing up in Brooklyn, you know, taught me a lot of tenacity and resiliency. And, and the Brooklyn that I grew up in the 70s and 80s is a lot different Brooklyn than the, you know, more gentrified Brooklyn version now. But that grit and that sort of uh, perseverance and resilience and having immigrant parents, I think were very uh, formative for me. Uh, like many immigrant parents, they, they want their sons to go to medical school. I actually wanted to be an artist, but uh, my dad dissuaded me from that. And then I became, uh, you know, sort of on this pre-med track, which led me to medical school and, and the great fortune of, 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 of uh, going to Downstate Medical Center, which was in Brooklyn, my hometown, and having friends and family to support me through that journey, which was very difficult being the first generation in my family to be a physician. Um, being in med school was very challenging. It was very hard. It was difficult. Uh, and early on, I had the, the good fortune of meeting a, uh, an African-American who was a cardiac surgeon, uh, Dr. James McPherson. And uh, I attribute him to the path of becoming a cardiac surgeon. Uh, and uh, seeing him in the operating room doing what he did to me was the most amazing thing that I'd ever seen in my life. And, and when I saw him open the chest and stop the heart and put it on bypass and then and then revive it again, I said to myself, that's exactly what I want to do when I grew up. Now, my military journey is started a little bit earlier than that. I happened to uh, be in junior ROTC uh, for the Marine Corps and was going to join the Marines after graduating high school at 17. My mom was ready to sign on my behalf and I was going to be off uh, to uh, Paris Island probably, and, and you and I probably wouldn't have had this conversation had it not been for me changing my mind <laughs> at the last minute. And, uh, and then sort of fast forward, when I graduated med school, the recruiters were around and I, I, I met a Navy recruiter who, um, you know, asked me about any interest I had in the military. And I told her, well, I, I seriously considered joining the Marines. And she, you know, sold me on the on the great career of uh, considering uh, being a naval surgeon and being able to take care of the Marines. And so I, I signed up for the Navy uh, after graduating from med school, <laughs> which is very unusual. And so if you kind of juxtapose, you know, the first year of medical school, basically just a newly signed, uh, you know, recruit, so to speak, to the, na to the Navy, um, you know, sort of signing up to be a, a, a general surgeon at the time, and then a year later, you know, running into Dr. McPherson and, and you know, saying, I'm going to be a cardiac surgeon. That's really what set the, the course for, for this interesting career that I've had. And it's been sort of an adventure ever since. Uh, traveled to 54 countries, multiple deployments, um, and on the path to becoming a cardiac surgeon, um, that tenacity, that resilience, and that sort of uh, stick to I think engendered in me, just like many of my colleagues and all the cardiac surgeons we know, that uh, genuine discipline uh, to be able to accomplish a great number of things. And uh, it's been both the military career and in parallel, my cardiac clinical career uh, that have led me to some many uh, great opportunities, including um, the work that I'm doing right now in transplantation. Uh, I trained at uh, Downstate for general surgery and then went off and, and was a general surgeon for a few years for the Navy, got to travel around the world on an aircraft carrier, and came back and did my cardiac surgery fellowship at the great University of Minnesota. <laughs> and as you know, there, uh, 
any of the folks that uh, have trained there or know of that program storied history know that uh, not only is it a great training program, but it's one that is steeped in transplant. And uh, you leave there with uh, a great appreciation and, and in my case, a love of transplantation. Uh, you know, I, I mean, that what you've, your, your path that you just laid out is, is so much to unpack and, and, and really a, 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 a amazing stepstone to where you are now. Um, you know, going back to growing up in Brooklyn or uh, Brownsville, uh, East Flatbush section, we've actually interviewed quite a few folks uh, on Same Surgeon Different Light who hail from New York, uh, many of whom come from Brooklyn. And it's really fascinating to see sort of the different generations um, from people we've talked to who all come from Brooklyn. And it's uh, uh, amazing the, the experiences that there, that, that there are. And you do talk about your, your, your parents who were immigrants. You know, you know it, it, it reminds me of some data from what's called the Black Progress Index, and that's sponsored by the NAACP. And that looks at indices of economic mobility. And as, as we know, um the 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 ex the, the estimated lifespan for black Americans is lower than the general average uh in the United States. But if you do a deep dive on the data, um the when you look at uh those black Americans who are either immigrants or children of immigrants, the expected lifespan is actually similar to the national average. And that is a perhaps a unique um, variable of economic mobility. Talk to me about your your life growing up in Brooklyn as a children of immigrants, and how that specifically laid led to your worldview of what was possible for you. Yeah, that's a that's a really great question, and you know I, I think I can um, you know speak to that in the sense that. You know, when you have parents that come here seeking opportunity here, meaning America, your your growing up vision and sort of uh, worldview of the country that you're, you know, as I was born and raised in, is a lot different. There was always hope and promise, you know, and and a, and a very genuine positivity about uh, the journey that my mom and my dad had to come to America because they were leaving, and their in their opinion, conditions that were. Um, not ideal that were not as good as America and and uh, that perspective was always you know sort of imprinted on me in fact it was it was it was uh, it was it was forged in me that America was this great land of opportunity and growing up in that environment of positivity was good because it gave me a lot of resilience and I think in in some ways you know especially when you think about some of the conversations we have in and around race today growing up uh, in that kind of positive environment of this hope and everything can can be done and it's possible it's it's a very nurturing environment so you uh you know you kind of feel like you have this shield of uh of invincibility because my mom and my dad said i can do and be whatever i can and 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 want to be in america it was a great way to grow up uh and so the Art of the possible was was sort of an open sea for me, and and that was great. And I had their love and their nurturing and their and their support all along the way. And in fact, I, I do believe, uh, you know, married with my 
uh, time in the military that I, I do believe that this is one of the greatest countries uh, in the world for opportunity and for those that want to work hard and, 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 uh, and sort of be dedicated to a cause. So growing up in Brooklyn, have, having, having you know, sort of had that background and that environment at home uh, was, was good because it also gave me what I believe is a, a survival instinct. And again, I, I kind of referenced my Brooklyn was a different kind of Brooklyn than the Brooklyn of today. Uh, and I've been in very dangerous positions and dangerous environments in my deployments and, and places in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and so forth. But there were places and, and experiences I had growing up in Brooklyn that were far scarier than <laughs> those <laughs> things that I faced there with, with the bullets and, and missiles flying overhead. Uh, and that was just the nature of, of the way that the city was back then. And, and you had to survive and you had your friends and you had your sort of resilience and you just had to, you know, grit it out and, and be tough. And you think about that kind of um, experience and you're saying, well, how could that have any impact on, you know, a future cardiac thoracic surgeon? Well, absolutely it does, because, you know, when you think about, in my case, a general surgery training program, it was very rigorous, very competitive and one that was pyramidal, it was survival of the fittest. And so, you, you know, I just learned how to grow up and, and you know, survive in Brooklyn. And, and, you know, it was the same thing in, in general surgery residency. It was the survival of the fittest. You just had to learn what it took to survive and to get through and to be successful at it. Uh, and so, you know, figuring out how to get home without getting beat up on the train <laughs> every day, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like, it was the same, same scenario. You know, like you said, same, same, uh, same thing, different light in general surgery. You know, figure out how to get from internship year to second year to third year to become a chief resident without getting fired or, or, or having something terrible happen that, that didn't make you finish. And so that experience, uh, you know, growing up in Brooklyn was was so formative. And and again, in retrospect, I, I was I was a bit disappointed. I had to come back home, so to speak, to downstate to go to medical school because I'd applied all over the place and, and fortunately did not have opportunities to go there. To these other places, I wound up coming home, and and in retrospect, that was really good. I came home to my home town of Brooklyn, and I had you know still some of my friends that you know obviously were in different stages of their career, but I had my family and I had a support system that helped me get through those those very challenging years. And I spent nine years at Downstate, uh, four years of medical school, and then a five year general surgery residency. So. Being home was was a good place, you know. It gave me the 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 soft landing, but also the hard platform to to be able to spring forward from there. Uh, so in so many ways, you know, as you said, there's a lot to unpack there. But Brooklyn was definitely formative. My parents' uh, guidance and support, and uh, and their optimism of what this country, you know, had in store for its citizens, and and what was available to them if if you applied yourself was was basically my mantra and it was the you know sort of the dna that i had in, in terms of uh how i was going to live my life forward and and i think it's still um it still is uh it still is the case today you know you you talked about your experience as a second year medical student um observing cardiothoracic surgery for the first time right there's there's a saying in uh diversity equity and inclusion which uh i actually don't like um it it's a, it's a saying that says uh, you can't be what you can't see. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to I like to to change that around to saying it is easier to become what you can see. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, I didn't meet my first black cardiothoracic surgeon until I was a fellow, a cardiothoracic fellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the experience of meeting Dr. McPherson, uh, who is a black American, um, uh, as a medical student performing cardiothoracic surgery and, and, and how did that experience uh, enlighten you and what, what you could become? Yeah, I, Dr. Cook, I mean, that, that is, that is the quintessential question there. I think all of us in medical school have had experiences even before medical school and certainly throughout residency and fellowship where we meet an individual, we have an experience, we have a patient encounter, we have a personal encounter that sort of shapes and creates and forges the destiny of what we're going to go into, right, in terms of the discipline. And for me, when I got into medical school, that in and of itself was such an act of accomplishment, right? It was just the fact that, oh, wow, I was, I was going to be a doctor. And at the time, there were many uh, folks that were, you know, sort of directing and, and sort of suggesting that as an African-American, as a minority, you need to go into the, you know, primary care specialties, right? And, and, and be, you know, the doctor for, for, for the community, so to speak. And and so I think a lot of my colleagues uh, at the time were, were interested in primary care. And I thought that that's what I wanted to do as well. In fact, I shadowed a, a primary care physician during the first year of, of medical school because that was what we were supposed to do. We're supposed to pick a specialty or something you're interested in and shadow that individual. And I had the pleasure and delight of working with a really fantastic family practice physician who was dedicated to his patients and to their families. And, and I, I enjoyed the time with him, but it wasn't it didn't give me a passion. It didn't, you know, didn't like light my fire. And then as a second year medical student, Dr. McPherson had come to give a talk, not on cardiac surgery, by the way, he was talking about uh, sort of uh, lessons in life and sort of just success in medical school in general. And he was introduced as a surgeon, of course, and this was intriguing to me. And I remember going up to him afterward and I said, uh, what kind of surgery do you do? And he said, well, I do cardiac surgery. And I said, oh, that's interesting. You know, had not really understood or appreciate what cardiac surgery was other than those were surgeons that you know dealt with the chest and he said why don't you come watch me operate and that invitation was it was really the beginning of my journey in this cardiac surgery profession because that extension of the invitation his you know interest in me was you know it was a colorblind issue because just the fact that someone was interested in showing me what they were interested in and what they were doing to me said, wow, this must be something that's really cool because he he's so excited about what he's doing. <laughs> he's, in su- he's in such love of what he's doing that he wants to show it with someone else. And, and he invited me to the hospital and it was very early in the morning. I remember taking the train up there to meet him, you know, and he went in at the hospital. I met him in the lobby and we went to do rounds and look at films. And back then it was still on the old fish <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And then we went to the OR and he parked me behind the, the curtain and Dr. Cook to, to see the chest open as a second year medical student before having nigh one clinical experience yet and, and have the patient's heart stop in front of you and have that bird's eye view um, and then see him, you know, do his work and then bring the heart back. It, it was absolutely, you know, the coolest thing that I ever saw in my life. And I said, you know, I want to do that when I grow up. So it was, it was, you know, a coincidence and perhaps serendipity that happened to be African-American, but uh, I had, you know, before that urologists uh, that were, you know, uh, people that, you know, showed me what they did and, and, but it wasn't, it didn't light the fire like, 
the cardiac, you know, surgery experience that I had. And, and yes, the fact that Dr. McPherson happened to be African-American, that was, that, that was to me also uh, very special because it, it was not lost on me that, uh, you know, this individual was someone that looked like me and, and the fact that he was doing this and he was passionate about it and, and was taking an interest in what I was interested in and, and, you know, you know, answering my questions and, and taking an interest in my career, it, it all, it all, it, it all sort of culminated in, in me saying, this is what I want to do when I grow up. And, and he was very supportive. He helped me with, uh, you know, my, my quest to, you know, secure a spot in, in fellowship. And, um, you know, we've kept in touch over the years and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a great, um, it's been a great uh, relationship. But one that but started with a you know a simple experience and and just like I do today and it, you know students ask me all the time you know questions about my career and and I know what impact that made so I, if ever if ever there's an opportunity I try and expose the students to what I do and give them the experience that I have in the hopes that they will say this is this is the coolest thing I've ever seen and I want to do this when I grow up as well. You know and and you. Know, not everything in life is like quid pro quo, right? You know, sure. the, the art of mentorship is that you provide for a mentee without expecting anything in return. Um, you know, obviously what Dr. McPherson got in return is a colleague and and then a, a friend, you know, down the road. Uh, but, you know, uh, just taking some of his time and showing interest and showing you what he enjoys doing um, really, uh, models a career. It does. And and I will say it's it's worthy to mention this because we're both in academics that, you know, that long storied sort of apprentice, apprenticeship, mentor, mentee relationship, it's really forged on you paying it forward. You know, we we say that and it's a bit cliche, but um I think it's really important as 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 those that are sort of um you know, carrying this this torch of of, of surgery or of surgeon, a cardiothoracic surgeon, or anyone in medicine for that matter, our profession is based on the fact that we impart and we give our knowledge, our experience, our expertise, and we share of ourselves to the next generation. And you may think, well, is that a burden? It's no, it's a duty. It's a duty because you know, like Dr. McPherson, like many of the great surgeons that I've had have been mentors. Many of the great physicians that have been mentors to me over the years, they've given that unselfish time to me. And in return, I've benefited. It's made me a better physician, made me a better doctor, made me a better cardiac surgeon. Uh, and I feel like that is our duty for the next generation. So whenever possible, especially if someone is expressing interest in, in, in the work that I'm doing uh, and ask questions about how uh, they should make decisions in their career, I'm always... Uh, free and, and, and excited to give that experience and give that time and share those uh, and share those thoughts with them and advice because I know that so many people unselfishly gave me that you know part of themselves to me and it, it helped me tremendously and I hope to sort of pay it forward. Yeah, you know I think um, you know and, and some of that it can be done in, in formal activities. I know the, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, has a look into the future program and as well as a mentorship program and uh, the Association of Black Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgeons, which you're on the board of director, we both are, uh, also is partnering with the STS on activities uh, as well. You know, I, again, 
looking at your background, you know, I, I, I do listen to some um, uh, military podcasts because I, I think a, a lot of what's done in the military is obviously is on a cutting edge, right? So a lot of uh, what we do in healthcare and some of the products that we use and the patents that are that 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 are are, are restoring health um, are derived from the military originally. Um, but your your MS in national security strategy of a concentration in artificial intelligence from the National War College. Tell me a little bit about your your background in AI and how does AI improve healthcare and cardiothoracic surgery, you know, if at all? Yeah, that's a, also a very great question and, and one that has a direct link, if you will, to cardiac surgery. And, and I say that in, in the following way. And again, you're going to hear some names. And, and, and again, I think it highlights again this important aspect of mentorship and having people that have been, you know, interested in one's career. So early on, uh, as a cardiac surgeon, obviously becoming familiar with the STS database and the fact that we as cardiac surgeons at a very early uh, point in, in our history, right, you know, decades and decades ago, were collecting data <laughs> so that we could see how to improve ourselves. Now, it, it seems so intuitive now because everyone's doing that, but it was really cardiac surgeons that really started doing that. And if you look at that history of the database, and I had to chance and opportunity to work with the greats of like Dr. Gro you know, Fred Grover, you know, with his work early in pioneering this, this, this resource that we have now, um, it, it became clear to me that cardiac surgeons, uh, and because of the nature of our work, we're always looking for ways to improve ourselves. And how are we doing that? We were looking at data. We were looking at the data from the centers that were doing great work and having good outcomes and we were saying what were they doing oh they're using less blood uh they're they're you know they're extubating people you know sooner and and we learned from that right and then some some of the centers that were not performing as well would do the things that the centers that were performing well did and and you you had a, a sort of equilibrium so over the years you know cardiac surgeons really improved what they were doing for our patients and, and the patients became sicker and more complex but we were still getting good outcomes and and low morbidity and mortality so that was always impressed upon me. And uh, I had an opportunity to work um, over the years with some colleagues uh, in a fellowship that was sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and at the time the Institute of Medicine. And I did a health policy fellowship and I met some colleagues of mine. And one of my colleagues happened to be an informaticist and I had no idea what informatics was. <laughs> he created this, uh, you know, uh, narrative about this discipline and this specialty where doctors were looking at data and improving the care that they gave and provided to patients. And I said to myself, well, that's what cardiac surgeons have been doing all their life. What are you talking about? That's nothing new. And, and so this informatics specialty uh, was something that became very intriguing for me. And, uh, and as you know, it's a new subspecialty. Uh, it, there's now a, a board certification that um, is sponsored by the American Board of Preventive Medicine. And uh, this colleague of mine introduced me to this sort of whole new subspecialty, if you will. And I, um, I started to do the work and, and became board certified in clinical mathematics years ago. That led to an opportunity to serve, believe it or not, as a chief medical informatics officer for the entire United States Navy 
you know, medicine, uh, uh, Navy medicine. And uh, I was at Navy headquarters working at a capacity, helping with the implementation of electronic health records and doing a whole myriad of other things uh, in and around data, which, you know, seemed natural to me because that's what cardiac surgeons did, you know? So it was always this, you know, going back to basics. We look at information, we look at outcomes, we look at what works, we look at what actually helped improve patient care outcomes, uh, reduce morbidity, mortality, and implement those things that we learned, those lessons learned into our new practices. And that's how we develop clinical practice guidelines to help us, you know, take care of trauma in the battlefield and in the battle space. So this was nothing new to me. It was just something under a different light. And they said, well, there's a subspecialty for it and there's board certification for it that brings in clinical information, informatics, data, and, and the use of technology and leadership, I'm, I'm all in. And, uh, and, and so it was doing that work uh, that led to uh, an assignment that I had at the National Defense University. And at the National Defense University, there was a two-year assignment that I, I, that I had, which was one of my greatest tours in my career. And the first year was working as the campus doctor, and I was the NDU surgeon, command surgeon. And the following year, you would go to the war college and mm. most of the doctors would go to the Eisenhower School, which uh, was more for like the, the staff uh, support of the military uh, sort of branches. Uh, but while I was there, I volunteered to be the doctor uh, for a dedication ceremony for the late great General Colin Powell, who was one of the greatest alumnus of the National War College and one of the most famous alumnus, contemporary alumnus of that, that institution. And while I was there sort of serving as the doc on standby, should anybody need one, <laughs> uh, I, I, I listened to all the great comments that were made of, of the great general and the dedication ceremony was amazing. And, and it's, an, it's an amazing library on this, on this very august, uh, 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 you know, campus. And um, at the end of the night, I had an opportunity to, to, to meet General Powell one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> he was all by himself for probably the first time in the whole evening. Yeah. And I went up to him and, and again, this is that that whole aspect of mentorship and leadership and and just taking an interest in someone. And that's exactly what he did. And, you know, many people that have met him and, and I share these 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 thoughts, you know, felt like he was completely interested in you. Everything was was just about how could I help you? And he was interested in what I was doing there. And he was very appreciative that I was volunteering to be the doctor at his ceremony. And at the end, he asked me, what am I going to do next year? And I said, well, sir, I'm going to be a student here at the War College at the Eisenhower School. And uh, if you know, National Defense University has several schools on the campus and the National War College is sort of the premier school on the campus. And he said, no, 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 you don't want to go to the Eisenhower School. You want to go to the National War College. Come to my school. <laughs> Come here. And it wasn't traditional for the doctors to, to go to National War College, they kind of saved that for the, the real soldiers and sailors and, <laughs> and officers, uh, so to speak. And, uh, and, uh, and so the next day I went to the Dean and I, I, I shared with him this, this interaction and engagement I had with, Dr. with General, General Powell. And I said, General Powell said I should come to War College. He said, well, we don't, <laughs> traditionally, we don't traditionally let the doctors go to War College, but um, yeah, I guess if you want to go, and that's what he said, I think we can accommodate that. So you know, it was just asking that question and, and making that connection with General Powell that led to going to National War College. Why is this all relevant to artificial intelligence? Because Dr. Cook, 
when I went to National War College, they had an entirely different curriculum there. Mm -hmm. um, and being the only doctor at the time when I graduated in the class of 2018, the only physician out of a class of 200, I impressed upon my colleagues there that uh, health and uh, more importantly, ill health was more important and more consequential to national security than anything else. You know, let, let we be concerned about uh, nuclear weapons and, and, and things that are certainly of, of danger and of, um, of threats. Uh, health was, was one that was even more consequential. And I talked about pandemics and things like that. Well, more totally, <laughs> it's totally apropos for what's happened in the last two years. With COVID. Absolutely, absolutely. But more importantly, for that year, I had an opportunity to do an independent study project and found a great mentor at the War College. Mentors, I should say, several mentors who uh, suggested and guided me into looking at artificial intelligence, especially at the time because my clinical informatics background, which was sort of a natural, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, relationship with the data and looking how data can can be used uh, and leveraged uh, to get insight. Uh, artificial intelligence, uh, this, you know, sort of great technology of our era was, as you can imagine, at the forefront of a lot of our discussions when it came to national security. And I thought it was very important to probably look at the impact of artificial intelligence in military medicine. And so I wrote a thesis on it that year. And uh, soon after completing that, that work and um, and graduating from the War College and going back uh, and and serving you know at headquarters in uh, Navy Medicine, I was recruited to uh, be a part of a new organization that was just being stood up at the Pentagon at the time called the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, you know aimed uh, and 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 basically established to leverage artificial intelligence to improve and enhance our national security. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's how I got into artificial intelligence. And um, not only did I learn a lot in that year, but I've learned even more ever since with uh, leading enterprise implementation and, and scaled projects and uh, delivering artificial intelligence to uh, the point of care uh, in, in different uh, scenarios and different venues and military medicine and, and, and learning about and uh, researching how this very powerful technology can and is being applied in healthcare writ large. And now again, you, <laughs> it, it all comes back to just meeting people at the right time and, and having some guidance and, and, um, and, and people take interest, but also um, give you opportunities to, to do things that are, that are pretty neat. No, yeah, you, you mentioned it all comes back to meeting the right people, but there was something that you said that, that was really uh, stands out in that um, uh, you're looking at this new field of informatics and 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 there and then subsequently artificial intelligence and you said this is nothing new <laughs> you know cardiac surgeons have been doing this for years exactly. and this is something that I've tried to impart on my on my trainees is the the importance of a growth mindset right yeah. instead of saying can we say how can we Yes. And that uh, you look at something that is totally foreign to you and totally new, but then you look at it in a perspective, well, this is adjacent to what I'm already doing. And I've been trained, I have the skill set, and I could do this new thing and not be concerned about my, my ability to do it. 
Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, like you said, it always, to me, comes back to what are we doing, right? We are taking a technology that leverages information, data, uh, lots of data, uh, analysis, <laughs> and we're applying it uh, using algorithms to find and detect patterns that give us insight so we can make better decisions. Well, no, yeah. I always, I always <laughs> say something. Um, oh, yeah, I always say something, uh, you know, uh, there is no free lunch too, right? So sure. you look at artificial intelligence and it could be extremely helpful in healthcare, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, mechanical ventilation management or or pneumothorax identification and films. Um, but you do hear uh, horror stories of AI, especially in the private sector uh, or, you know, uh, even the, the local regional government sector. So for instance, you uh, um, the potential for AI to, to worsen disparities or be inequitable. Sure. Um, for instance, when it comes to uh, selection of bail candidates uh, in the, the, um, the, the, the legal system, um, or uh, looking at um, uh, pulse oximetry and its an inability to have accurate data for patients with darker skin, and how does that factor in, in AI? Uh, algorithms. Uh, can you comment on this? Is is there how, how do you how do you um, um, create an algorithm that doesn't make things worse, especially in cardiothoracic surgery? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a very good question, and I think that's at the center of the discussion in and around artificial intelligence, particularly when it comes to healthcare and and medicine. And you know, that's going to always be the case. And for us in our projects that we, you know, advanced the projects that we helped develop and, and influenced, we've uh, tried, and I've always espoused as sort of the, the the person trying to be the champion in all of this uh, discussion uh, that the humans and physicians uh, need to be sort of at the center and the forefront of the development of these technologies and these solutions and these algorithms because. It's, it's with doing so that, you know, you introduce uh, hopefully the human element of understanding how bias can be introduced and, 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 and in such ways, and when the bias is introduced that you get, uh, you get poor solutions or you get solutions that actually be harmful and not helpful. Uh, and so we've, we've, we've sort of uh, espoused and I've always espoused this sort of human in the center mind frame and mindset. And I think fortunately in healthcare, because we have such a conservative group, um, you know, I think it's going to be some time before we just let, uh, you know, a technology sort of take over, which is, which is I think, uh, appropriate. Uh, when people, and that is patients, are coming to our healthcare systems seeking care and help and um, uh, relief from their ailments, uh, they, they want a technology, but more important, they want a human connection. I think as uh, we start forging and pioneering uh, these technologies, we're always going to have to keep that at the forefront, uh, first and center, sort of for, uh, front and center of mind. And I think cardiac surgeons do that because we are just innately, again, designed and programmed to know that when we undertake a, a case, we're putting the very lives of someone <laughs> in our hands. I mean, they're literally giving you their heart and they're giving you their lung and they're giving you their, their, their trust. Uh, that you're going to do a good job. And it's it's not that they're looking for the technology that you're going to apply. It's that they're, they're looking for this uh, compassionate 
interested and caring individual that's going to take care of them. And, and that's how I've approached, you know, all of our projects in AI, believe it or not. And, and, and I think it's served us well thus far. And I think, uh, you know, that's going to be the way we responsibly use the technology and leverage it in the future. And then we have done some good things. You, you, hi you highlighted some things that are of concern and that I made the bad press, but, um, you know, the fact that we were able to develop some algorithms in our case and some of our projects where we're helping pathologists detect cancers uh, in, 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 their, um, in their microscope, you know, using an interface that's uh, leveraging computer vision based on a myriad of data and algorithms that have been trained on that data. That's, that's a good thing. You know, that's, that's something that's going to help enhance the diagnostic capacity and capability of our pathologists so that they can detect things even sooner and faster and help patients get to the care that they need even sooner. Um, you talk about radiology, uh, you know, there's an enormous opportunity there to detect things at a pixel level that humans won't be able to, to find that are uh, abnormal and, and then thus bringing, uh, you know, patients to the attention of care providers uh, sooner, uh, especially when it comes to recurrence or even detection of initial cancers. So I think the future is bright as long as we continue to do it responsibly. And I think cardiac surgeons, again, are leaders in this field. We responsibly take on technology and, and typically don't just cavalierly apply new things without them being tested and, and, uh, and sort of socialized and learned about, uh, you know, uh, after time and, and giving some rigor. And I think, uh, and I hope, it's my hope anyway, that uh, we'll continue to do that when we start to um, implement more and more AI solutions. You know, I, I could easily see um, the benefits of AI in thoracic surgery. I, I do a lot of robotic surgery. So, you know, uh, whether it's uh, uh, tissue compression and use of your stapler um, or, uh, you know, maybe development of a bioluminescence marker to determine positive or negative margins or uh, helping you do a segmentectomy. Um, what, uh, give me an example of how AI could uh, benefit and augment the ability to do cardiac surgery. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you, you know, you expressed some examples right there. And one of the things I think about is uh, a project that I worked on with some of my colleagues uh, at Hopkins, where we were looking at a model that uh, uh, we designed with our computer science colleagues that was able to detect cancer recurrence uh, sooner uh, than uh, radiologists were, you know, specialists in radiology, thoracic radiologists, in fact. And if you think about how that can improve uh, the fidelity of treatment and also the detection of recurrence, uh, that's a great tool, if you will, to have in sort of the quiver of uh, a thoracic surgeon, a cardiac surgeon, because now we can say, all right, we can, we can leverage this technology, we can leverage this tool uh, in a way to better screen and to monitor our patients that we are treating with uh, cancer, uh, to detect the recurrence faster and, uh, and sooner uh, so that it doesn't spread and, and it can be addressed. I mean, that's just one example. Uh, the pathology example is another one. Uh, you know, it's not lost on me in my work in transplant surgery in particular. I bring that as an example. Uh, when you think about thoracic transplant, uh, our colleagues that are still out recovering the organs have, have been delayed because of uh, you know, our abdominal colleagues that have to do uh, liver biopsies, for example. Uh, you know, there's, there's definitely potential. And I've uh, been in conversations with some of my colleagues at Google where they've, they've, they've uh, you know, developed some algorithms that can actually detect 
uh, inflammation and abnormalities in the liver. Now you think about, you know, potentially applying that technology in a way, especially when you're in, in the hospital in the middle of the night doing a recovery and you have to wait for a pathologist to come in, you know, why not use or leverage that kind of technology so that you can screen for, you know, uh, some of these conditions that may discount or, uh, you know, lead to uh, an organ being rejected or, or or considered not viable or good for transplantation, and thus you know be a bit more efficient with recovering the other organs, so that um, you know the hearts and lungs can get transplanted faster. So I think that's just uh, there's just a myriad of examples, that, and I think we're going to continue to see uh, in the in the years ahead uh, rapid adoption of some of these things, as as well as as they get proven and as they get tested and they get adopted but i think that the time and 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 you know you think about the um, the future of what we're going to see in healthcare uh compared to the last decade or so i think is exciting uh you know it, 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 and 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 for those of us that are, are willing to embrace the change and as you said adopt a world view of like this is a, a new way of doing something and, and perhaps a better way of doing something and as long as we test it and validate it and make sure that it's safe um, I think it's going to provide us enhancements and and give us uh, opportunities to, to to provide care in a better way it, it's an amazing amazing future you know you, you talked a, uh, a, a bit about your your um, homeland deployments uh, but you've been uh, deployed in some uh, uh, really um, uh, difficult, uh, uh, yeah, productive situations. You know, sure. um, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, uh, you were director of surgical services for the USS Carl Vinson uh, for and the Carrier Strike Group. Uh, Operation Enduring Freedom uh, in the Afghanistan, Afghanistan's Helmand and, and Nimroz provinces. And even uh, supporting special joint forces missions in South America, Middle East, South Pacific, Australia, and Africa. When we when we think of these deployments in the military, uh, we think of teams, and we think of the ability to take uh, different responsibilities, um, make them cohesive, in order to achieve an objective, and. Um, um, there's always excitement about the ability to translate these military expertise and teams in healthcare, and it's and you have mentioned that you felt that you've accomplished this when you developed the Star Team. Uh, can you describe a little bit about what that is and how is it transforming healthcare and transplantation? Sure, absolutely, and that's a good way to kind of bring us full circle, uh, Dr. Cook, to, to sort of talk about how this journey of mine began, and I talked about how powerful the military influence was and how powerful the cardiac surgery experience was. Um, you know, team-based work is, is paramount, both in cardiac surgery and in the military, and what I learned in the military through those multiple deployments is that we were, you know, we were brought together a disparate team, usually coming from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, so for that matter, uh, all around a mission. And that mission was articulated and communicated in a very clear, concise, and way that everyone understood what that mission was. And whether we were in a tent in Afghanistan saving lives for the blown up Marines, or we were in, you know, in Africa you know, on a diplomacy mission or on a health relief mission, the mission was clear and was articulated to our team. And even though our team came together 
sort of in this disbanded, disjointed way, we all rallied around the mission. Now you take that construct and you think about cardiac surgery in the operating room, right? <laughs> you have uh, you know, anesthesia, you have a surgical tech, you have a, a, a scrub nurse, you have a circulator, and you have a, a perfusionist, and you have a cacophony of, of things happening in, in, in the typical room. And yet it's the cardiac surgeon that has to bring all of those individuals together and have them stay focused on the mission. And the mission is to successfully get the patient through the procedure and out of the operating room onto a recovery. Now, you know, you may think, well, what, what does that have to do with uh, the military? Well, it has everything to do around the military because as a cardiac surgeon, you lead that team uh, for good, bad, or indifferent. You are the leader of that team and you have yeah. to bring everybody together. And it's fine when everything's going great, but when things go wrong, you also have to bring that team together. You have to bring everybody back to being focused and, and it could be, you know, the matter between life and death. And because the stakes are so high in cardiac surgery, there really has to be clear communication of what the mission and objective is. And you have to rally, the, you know, a bunch of different people have different jobs and roles to do their job and role very effectively, very efficiently and with perfection so that you can get the mission successfully achieved. And so those experiences were really I think the foundation of, of, of what I saw as an opportunity to improve and enhance transplant surgery when it came to cardiac transplant, in particular, heart and lung transplant surgery. And that's the way that the STAR team was sort of you know, developed. It was over the years of, of working in the space of recovering organs where I realized that it was uh, often chaotic and, 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 and you know, crazy. You know, you'd go to a hospital, they wouldn't have your equipment, it'd be a team that never did this before, it, um, you know, anesthesia that never did a transplant, didn't know that you needed to continue to ventilate after you cross-clamp, didn't know what a cross-clamp was. And so I'd find myself in getting into these environments where I consistently had to communicate to everyone what the mission was. And it dawned on me, just like you did before, I said, hey, wait a minute, this is what cardiac surgeons do. This is what we do in the military. We come into an environment that's often foreign, often chaotic, where the stakes are really, really high, right? And you have to formulate and get everyone to rally around the mission. And in our case, our mission is to successfully recover this heart or this lung and do it in an efficient and effective manner and do it with perfection and with precision so that we can get this organ back to the waiting recipient. And we have to coordinate all these activities with everyone else in the room, but also with everyone back home at the center. And I saw an opportunity to really bring into play these experiences that I had over the course of my military career, over the course of conducting cardiac surgery as a way to improve and professionalize the recovery of hearts and lungs. And fortunately, I was able to recruit a team of phenomenal surgeons and uh, support staff and coordinators and surgical assistants that all are rallying around this mission of ours. And, um, and we've been able to demonstrate that when you do professionalize and, and, and codify and bring together this concept of team, uh, and in particular a team that's focused, dedicated, and uh, committed uh, to recovering hearts and lungs, you can do it in such a way that you start to improve outcomes. And you start to reduce the rate of primary graft dysfunction. You standardize things. You start to collect data, which is what we're doing. And on a daily basis, even before meeting with you today, 
our team met to talk about the cases from the last week. And we talk about every aspect of it, the logistics, the preservation, the clinical aspects, the review, the checklist that we have, all to make sure that we continue to improve every aspect of this, this process uh, in, in such a way that delivers a, a, you know, a, a very reliable outcome to the partners that we work with. And uh, it's been very rewarding because you know, as we mature in, in, in our careers, um, you know, we, we realize more and more, you know, how much there is that needs to be done, but we also realize that you can make an impact in, in, in maybe a small area of, of medicine and, and, and in a small niche part of uh, transplant surgery. Uh, we are really excited that uh, we're able to, to make an impact and make a difference. And, um, and again, it brings to bear just as we started the conversation, uh, you know, these these two experiences would have been unique, which have been uniquely defining in my life, uh, cardiac surgery, uh, all of those things that uh, that are learned along the way, <clears throat> and in the military, uh, forging teamwork, um, you know, mission focus, and uh, precision, expertise, and uh, and camaraderie to bring about a, a good result. Your precision, expertise, and camaraderie. I mean, I think that's a uh, that's a, a a mission statement right there. You know, I always end up uh, our conversations um, with the question, where is cardiothoracic going from your perspective? That is a great question. Where is cardiac surgery going in my perspective? I, I think cardiac surgery is going to be unrecognizable in the future when compared to today. Um, and I say that because uh, it's just true with every other industry, even though medicine and in, in, in theory tends to lag behind, uh, you know, finance and, and other industries. Uh, the fact that we are in a situation now where the adoption of technology, and we talked about AI to name one, uh, is happening at such an accelerated rate. Um, and we have a digital native workforce that's sort of coming to be the new generation of cardiac surgeons, so to speak, uh, with innovation and with, um, I think, creativity that, that that's probably unlike anything we've seen before, and the opportunity for people to collaborate in a way that they couldn't collaborate with before. I mean, it's, it's you know, I've collaborated with my colleagues all over the world uh, in a way that, you know, could not be done before. I think it's just going to accelerate advancement and innovation. So what I think we define as cardiac surgery today is going to be, you know, tremendously different. You talked about robotics. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what will be different uh, for our future. But I believe that cardiac surgery, as, as I noticed when I was, uh, you know, uh, seeing that very first case uh, and recognizing the expertise in, in Dr. McPherson and then all the other great colleagues that I've had and mentors that I've had over the years, Dr. Cohen, Dr. Dr. Baumgartner, I mean, all of these great giants of cardiac surgery uh, has always attracted the best and the most excellent. <laughs> and I think because we're going to continue to have those people in our field, uh, you can only expect good things to come. Well, Dr. Tete, from Flatbush to the Nimroz province in Afghanistan to Washington, D.C., I think you uh, epitomize what the modern cardiothoracic surgeon is and what can be and what should be in regards to taking our modern technology and our, our future anticipated technology 
combining it with cardiothoracic surgery and restoring the health of our communities. Thank you very much for uh, this wonderful conversation and, and for all the incredible work that you do. Oh, thank you, Dr. Token. I, I, again, uh, so many mentors and sponsors and, and friends and colleagues to name uh, that uh, I'm just remiss. I can't uh, spend all this time uh, thanking all the people that have helped me, but there have been so many along the way. And I'd like to especially thank you and the STS for giving me the opportunity to share this story with you. Wonderful. Take care. All right. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.